Well, last week we started a brand new series that we are calling True-ish. And so what we're doing in this series is we are examining some statements, we're examining some things that, that are true, but not completely true, they're more true-ish. Like there's some truth to them, there's some not truth to them. And so what we're gonna do as we get started this morning is we're gonna, we're gonna just do a little bit of true-false questions. So I'm gonna make a statement to you, and then you're gonna get to vote, whether you think it's true or whether you think it's false. All right, so here's the first one. A cross between a horse and a zebra is called, uh, yeah, yeah, sorry. A cross between a horse and a zebra is called a zonkey. All right, raise your hand if you think it's true. Raise your hand if you think it's false. It is in fact true and also could be known as a zorse. Uh, so a zonkey and a zorse, so there you go. Next one, A is the most common letter in the English language. All right, raise your hand if you think it's true. Raise your hand if you think it's false. It is, in fact, false. E would be the most common letter used in 11% of all English words. So there you go. All right, next one. Madonna's real name is Madonna. Madonna's real name is Madonna. Raise your hand if you think that's true. Raise your hand if you think it's false. It's actually true. All right, that Madonna's real name is actually Madonna. Next one. Coffee is made from berries. Coffee is made from berries. Raise your hand if you think it's true. Raise your hand if you think it's false. It is, in fact, true because when the coffee berry turns color from, from green to red, it's ripe and then it's taken and it's roasted and it's made into this beautiful substance that we call coffee. Uh, but it starts out as a berry. Last two, goldfish have a two-second memory. Raise your hand if you think it's true. Raise your hand if you think it's false. It's technically false. They can remember for months. I don't know how they know that, uh, but apparently um, they have months of memory, and I don't know what a goldfish needs to remember for months, but apparently they can. Final, final one. In the English language, there is no word that rhymes with orange. True or false? Some of you are trying right now. Don't hurt yourself. It's true, all right? No word that you're trying in your head right now, no word actually rhymes with orange. All right, so there you go. Here's some of these things, like with, with these statements, like maybe we could debate the word that you made up in your head that rhymes with orange. We could probably debate that. But for the most part, like these are true statements. These are false statements. These are things that are completely true and they can be proven. But what we're doing is we're looking at these, these few things, these statements that, that sound true and maybe have some truth to them. But what we're finding is in life, there's a, there's a lot of gray right? There are black, there is white, but there is a lot of gray. And there are these states that, that find themselves squarely in the middle of that gray area. They're true-ish. And today, the one we're, we're looking at is you can be a Christian without going to church. So this is the statement. You can be a Christian without going to church. So on the surface, and technically, it's true. Nowhere in the Bible, when you flip open the Bible, it does not say the 11th command is thou shalt go to church in order to be a Christian. That's not there. Like, in fact, we talked about a passage last week in Ephesians 2 that says we are saved by grace through faith so that no man could boast that it's not by our works. We are not saved by good things we do, but by a good thing that Jesus did. So technically, this statement is true. And maybe you're thinking, then why are we here before you leave? All right. Just because it might be technically true doesn't mean that it's wise. 
Just because something might be true doesn't mean that it's the right thing to do. As I've become more, uh, a parent for more and more years, there's been this statement that I've began to say more and more as my kids get older. It's not quite up there with I love you, but it's right on par with what happened or what are you doing. It's the statement of that's a bad idea or that is going to end terribly. These are things that and I feel like I say multiple times a day. No, Ava, you cannot ride your scooter down the slide. That's a bad idea. It's not going to end well. No, Emma, you cannot share your pizza with our dog, Maddie. That is not a good idea. It is not going to end well. No, you can't hang upside off the bed and try to fall on your head. Not a good idea. It's not going to end well. And any parents in the room, like you guys can identify with that statement that you tell all the time, like, that is not a good idea. It's not going to end well. And that's the same advice I want to give you guys today. While it might be true that you can go to church without being a Christian, it is not a good idea. Or it's, it might be true that you can be a Christian without going to church. I think I said that backwards. <laughs> you can go to church, you can be a Christian without going to church, although it is true. It's a really bad idea. And it is going to end terribly. And it's one thing when I'm telling my kids that's a bad idea when there may be like physical pain that would accompany it or an unfortunate situation where the dog eats your pizza. It's a whole different thing when our eternal destinies are at stake. There's a whole other thing when our, when our lives are laying in the balance, when our soul is at stake. So once again, I just want to lay all of my cards out on the table at the very beginning. And here's, here's what we believe. Here's what I believe. Is while it is possible to be a Christian without going to church, it is terribly unwise, and in no way should it be the norm. This is what I believe. This is what I think as a church, this is what we hold, we hold to. We believe this is, this is true. And there may be times in life that force you not to be able to go to church. There may be a worldwide pandemic who comes and makes your church only meet in person 17 times in a 52-week period. That might theoretically happen, right? I wish it was theoretical. That might happen. There may be times when you are incredibly sick and the most loving thing you can do is not come. Like that might be a thing. There may be times, a season in your life where work is just extra busy and you're having to work a little bit, but this should never be the norm. It should never be the norm that we are separating ourselves from this. I just want you to think about this idea for a second. Think about being married. Can you be married and never spend time with your spouse? Sure. How's that going to go for you? How well is that going to last? Like, you can be married and never be home and never be with your spouse. How good is that marriage going to be? How fulfilling and how life-giving is that marriage going to be? Not great. And so although the Bible doesn't say you have to go to church in order to be a Christian, the Bible also doesn't say don't eat a tire. The Bible also doesn't say don't drink battery acid. We just know that's a bad idea. Like the Bible doesn't have to say that explicitly for us to think that's not a good idea. Like human wisdom is going to tell us that's a bad idea. We don't need to do that. And so as we wrestle with this idea of you can be a Christian without going to church, the question that arises for me is this, is how long? How long? You know, if you separate yourself enough from the body of Christ, if you separate yourself enough from, from hearing his word, if you separate yourself long enough, like how long are you going to be living faithfully for Jesus? Maybe a follow-up question is, is why? 
Like, why would we do that? Why would we want to separate ourselves from the life-giving, from the chance of meeting together? And so we begin to wrestle with this. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 10, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and flip to Hebrews 10. And as you're flipping there, I just want to give us a little bit of a background of the book of Hebrews. And, and what's the point of the book of Hebrews? What we find is this. The book of Hebrews was written to a, a bunch of Christians who had recently switched away from Judaism to Christianity. So they've moved away from Judaism to following the way of Jesus. And now persecution has arised. Now people are, are being threatened. People are losing their lives for this. And so they're starting to wonder, was this a good idea? They're starting to wonder, should I have done this? Should I go back to Judaism? And the whole book of Hebrews is written to the fact of saying, no, Jesus is better. Jesus is superior. Jesus is greater. And I find it fascinating that it's in that context that we find this passage in Hebrews chapter 10 that talks about the importance of the body of Christ, that talks about the importance of the church. It talks about the importance of us getting together. Hebrews 10, verses 23 through 25 says this. It says, Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm, for God can be trusted to keep his promise. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And let us not ne neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now as the day of his return draws near. A few weeks ago when Stephen was preaching on the Christus Victor, he, he referenced this passage. And I was already beginning to lay the groundwork for this sermon. I just remember thinking to myself, bro, don't you steal my sermon? Don't you do that. Thankfully, he didn't. But like, he started setting up this idea that I thought was really significant when talking about Jesus being the victor and us as followers of Jesus. And so what, one of the things Stephen was talking about and implying, maybe he didn't say this directly, but Jesus didn't die to make us safe. He died to make us dangerous. Jesus didn't die to make us safe. He died to make us dangerous, a real threat to the enemy, a real threat to the powers of this dark world, a real threat to, to, to Satan. And so when Jesus comes, he comes and does battles against the powers of this dark world. And as followers of Jesus, we do the same thing. And in Matthew chapter 16, there's a powerful moment that happens here. So the, Jesus and his followers, they're in Caesarea Philippi. And it would have been a place that would have been known for all kinds of pagan activity, all kinds of false gods, all kinds of things that would have been going on. And so Jesus is there with his disciples, and he asks this question to them. He says, who do people say that I am? And they, they, they step up. They're like, well, some say, some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Some say some of the other prophets. And then Jesus asked explicitly, okay, who do you Say that I am. It's the question that every single one of us have to wrestle with with our lives is who do we say that Jesus is? Not who other people, but who do we say that Jesus is? And in verse 16, Peter replies this. He says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And then Jesus replies in verse 18. Now I say that you are Peter, which means rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. So when, Jesus, when Peter makes this declaration, Jesus says, okay, I don't actually think it's Peter 
I think it's the declaration that Jesus is building his church on, that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And so when Peter says that, Jesus says, okay, this is what we're going to build on, and the powers of hell will not be able to stand against it. When we make the declaration, when we give our lives to Jesus and say, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, we are volunteering for war. We are getting ready for battle. Because here's the thing, as a church, we are not a clique. We are not a club. We are the living, breathing body of Christ. We are being empowered. We are being ready to go and do battle against the enemy, to go and do battle in this dark world. Think about Ephesians 6. Once again, you guys should go and listen to the Christus Victor sermon if you didn't, if you didn't hear it all. But in, in, in Ephesians 6, it talks about this idea of where we put on the armor of God. Why do we need armor if we're just meant to be safe? I've never wore armor, but I'm pretty sure just laying on the couch in armor isn't very comfortable. Well, no, why are we putting armor on? Because there is a battle that is going to take place. And I find it fascinating that every single one of those things, whether it's the, <coughs> excuse me, whether it's the helmet, whether it's the brace, breastplate, whether it's the shoes, whatever it may be, it is always put on. It's something that we collectively do time and time again. We put on these things so that we can be ready to go to battle. So church is less of a place for us to come and feel safe and secure and more of a place for us to get ready to do battle. And so Mark Batterson, in one of his books, he says this. I love this quote. He says, Jesus didn't die on the cross just to make you safe. He didn't die on the cross just to forgive you. His aim is much higher than that. He died to change you. He died to make you dangerous, a threat to the enemy. He died so that we can make a difference for all eternity. And so before we dive into studying in depth Hebrews 10, I just want to lay the groundwork for us for just a second. So in psychology, there is this thing that is referred to as the complexity bias. And what the complexity bias is, is it's a logical fallacy which leads us to lend and to give more cadence to complex concepts. So in essence, what ends up happening is when we have to solve a problem, we always seem to go for the more complex solution because we think to ourselves, oh, the simple thing, it won't work. Like someone, maybe your car is messed up. And rather than just like turning it off and turning it back on, you think to yourself, well, that would never work. And so we try all the complexity, try all the complex things because this is the way our, our minds work, right? We think, oh, if it's complex, it must be better. And I don't want us to do that when it comes to church. I don't want us to just start thinking and over giving undue respect to something because here's the reality. We cannot underestimate the power of showing up. We can't underestimate the power of that. We can try to make it more complex, but there is a beauty, there is a power in simply showing up together. Because here's the thing, is sometimes, most of the time when God works, he works from the heart, he works out, right? But as we were going through our series in the book of Deuteronomy, remember all those rituals and all those habits and all those celebration that the people of Israel had to do? Why? Because sometimes God works from the outside in. And so we begin to do the things that God has us to do, and our lives begin to change. And the same thing can happen. It's like we show up at church. We faithfully say, I am going to be here. I am faithfully going to take part. I'm going to open my Bible. I'm going to listen. I'm going to follow along. I'm going to do these things. And God can begin to work and change us. In fact, there's some research that recently came out from Trinity College in Dublin. 
that talked about the power, the health benefits of going to church. So if you go to church, you're naturally, you're going to be a healthier person. So here's what they found in their study is that women who went to religious service once a week had a 33% lower risk of death than those who don't. I hate the way that's worded because they're all going to die. But when you start doing the math, when you start reading through this, premature death or, or people who go to church are dying at a 33% less rate than people who don't, as far as like quickly wise. Here's another one. I found this one really fascinating. Is that church people who go to church frequently, so more than once a week. So if you go to community group, you go to church, you are 55% less likely to die from things like heart attack or stroke than those who don't. That's simply by showing up, going to church. Like, there's a lot of research on this. But here's, the, here's a quote from this research I thought was fascinating. There are a lot of things, there are not a lot of things that does what religion does. The researchers, they can't describe it. They can't, they can't put their finger as to why that this begins to happen. Why do people who, who go to church regularly why do they not die as frequently or as quickly as people who don't? Like, they can't really put their finger on it. All they know is there's something about going to church that ends up changing people and making them live longer and live better lives. And so you can read the research if you want. But here's the thing. Don't overcomplicate it. Don't have this complexity bias where you just try to think more complex. Like, don't overestimate the power of showing up because that's important. And so just a just a moment of transparency for me. After the, the last few months since my grandpa died, it's been really hard for me. Like, I'll just, I, the grief has been really heavy. I've really, really struggled the last few months. And can I be honest? There's been a few times when I've come to church, I didn't really want to read scriptures about Jesus conquering death because I was mourning death. Can I be honest? There were times I didn't want to sing songs about joy because I was in deep sorrow not going to cry. But your faith helped me. When somebody next to me was talking and reading a passage about Jesus conquering death, my faith was strengthened. When somebody behind me or beside me or in front of me were singing about the joy of Jesus and the joy that he brings, my faith was strengthened. So I borrowed from your faith because I needed that. And one of, maybe one of you here now, like you're not really feeling it. You're here, but you're, you don't, you're not emotionally in there, and you don't, you're not really feeling it. Maybe what you need to do is borrow some faith from your neighbor and help that their faith can help grow you and move you. And as you hear them singing, you can, you can borrow from their faith. Because when we show up together, those are some of the things that happen. One of my favorite stories in the Gospels is from Mark chapter 2. It's when four, four guys carry their paralyzed friend to Jesus. And as they get to the house, the house is busy, it's packed, they can't get in. So the four friends take their buddy who's paralyzed on the mat, they take him to the top of the roof, cut a hole in the roof, drop him in front of Jesus. Jesus sees them and he says, seeing their faith. The faith of who? The friends. Jesus sees the faith of the friends and he heals the man who's paralyzed. So we borrow, sometimes we need that. We borrow faith from one another. Man, it's hard for me to borrow faith when I'm sitting on a couch by myself. It's hard for me to borrow faith from you guys singing if I'm, if I'm not here. So don't overestimate the power of just showing up and being together with one another. It's our faith, our faith can encourage the faith of others. And we need that sometimes. We need one another. 
And so as you, some of you may be thinking as we're talking about church and, and showing up, maybe you're thinking to yourself, well, church doesn't have to be in a building and it doesn't have to be a real formal thing. And that's, that's true. Also, you might be thinking like, I don't have to go to church to see God and to experience God. Also true. But is that what we're going to church for? Are we going to church to see and experience God? Is that the reason that we're here? Because as we begin to read through the New Testament, one of the things that I find fascinating is the New Testament doesn't know this idea of going to church, but this idea of meeting together, collectively being with one another. And so as we begin to think through this, here's, there's, a, there's a diagram, there's a, an outline for what church is required to do. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it says this. As all believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the sharing of meals, including communion, and to prayer. So this is what church is. It's walking through these things. So drinking beer and drinking crisps with your buddy while watching rugby. Could be fun. It's not church. Going hiking and eating granola bar and drinking protein shakes. It's fun. It's not church. Like watching the sunrise or watching the sunset on a mountain. Cool, but it's not church. And I think Hebrews chapter 10 really helps us to kind of understand this idea of what we are doing, why we come together, why we gather with one another. So let's look again. Hebrews 10, walk through each verse together. Verse 23 says this. Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm, and we can, for God, can be trusted to keep his promises. I want you to catch that. Let us hold tightly to what? You guys catch that word? Hope. And that's a really unusual statement, right? Because as we're reading this, maybe you think to yourself, you know, hold tightly to faith. Okay, that's something we can do. But like this idea of holding tightly to hope, like that just seems a super weird idea. Like you, we would expect hold tightly to our faith because that's a bit more tan, tangible. But holding tight unwaveringly to hope, that just seems a little odd. And as you read through the book of Hebrews though, what we find is there is a fascinating wordplay that is happening here. Because in Hebrews, chapter 10, verse, Hebrews 6, verse 19, the writer of Hebrews describes hope as the anchor for our soul. So here's the wordplay. Is we anchor ourselves to the anchor that anchors our soul. You ever said anchor so many times in a sentence? We anchor ourselves to the anchor that anchors our soul. So this is what the writer of Hebrews is doing. He said, you hold tight to the hope that holds you tight to the faith that you have in Jesus. You hold tight to that unwavering anchor that is going to keep you sturdy, that's going to keep you rooted, that's going to keep you planted. You anchor yourself to that because that's not going to move. And we can trust that. And so as Christians, we can, we can believe, we can have this hope, we can be confident in the fact that God is going to do what he says he's going to do. God is going to keep his promises because God is a promise keeper and we can trust him. So we anchor ourselves to that hope. We anchor ourselves to the hope that anchors our, anchors our lives. At the start of this passage, it says, let us. In verse 24, it says, let us. Verse 25 Anybody want to guess? Let us. Each time it starts by saying, let us. What does us mean? 
us, everyone, together, collectively. So this is what we're saying. Like as, we, as the writer of Hebrews is diving into this, he is encouraging us like, hey, you need to have some accountability to this because there needs to be some people that you are holding accountable. There are some people that need to hold you accountable. It is an us, a collective group of people. It's not just my job. As we walk through this, it's not just Stephen's job. It's not just Nick's job. It's not just, you know, the pastor's job of this church to do these things. Let us, all of us, this is our job. There's no more riding the bench. There's no more standing on the sidelines. It's time to get in the game because Christianity is not the spectator sport. We get in the game. We are going to get involved. It's, it's an us. It includes, it's a community of people. We need each other. I need you. Whether you believe it or not, you need me, right? Like, we need each other. And can I just tell you this? I want to make sure you hear this. When you aren't here, we all miss out. Not just a few people. When you are not here, everyone suffers. Everyone misses out because there is an us. We all need each other. We all need you. So we cling tightly to hope. Verse 24 continues on. He says, let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good work. Man, this beginning is really convicting to me. Let us think of ways to motivate one another. Can I just ask you, when's the last time you sat in bed at night and thought of ways to motivate other followers of Jesus? When's the last time you prayed and asked God for wisdom of ways that you could motivate someone? When is the last time that you met with someone with the sole purpose of motivating them as they follow the way of Jesus? When is the last time that we did this? This is what Hebrews is saying. Like, let us think of ways, constantly brainstorming ways that we can motivate one another. And I don't know if you're anything like me, probably are. I spend a lot of time thinking about what meals we're going to fix each week. Anyone else? I spend a lot of time thinking about holiday plans. I spend a lot of time thinking of ways that I can enjoy my day off with my family. Hopefully I'm not alone in this. But what are we, are we thinking of ways to motivate one another? Are we sitting around just thinking of ways that we can encourage, that we can motivate one another? And this word motivates a really fascinating word. It's actually can be more literally translate spur. And I don't know if there are any like cowboy enthusiasts in the room, but like think of like the spurs on the back of boots where like they would kick a horse to make it run faster. That's a thing, right? Apparently I'm not really a cowboy, I don't know. But I, I've seen people who do that. Like that, that, that's a thing I've seen in Western movies. And so it's this idea of like spurring one another on. It's this idea of exasperation or irritation. And this is one of the only places in the Bible that this word is actually used in a positive way. Because it's almost always a negative way. And this, is what, this is what this word is telling us. Sometimes we need to give each other a little kick, right? Get each other going, getting each other moving. A few months ago, I was coaching our, our, my basketball boys. And, and we had a moment where like, we came out of the, th we were coming into the third quarter, and I put my five starters on the court. And within like 45 seconds, they had just quit. They weren't trying. They were, they were being lazy. They weren't giving any real effort. And so I did what I, I think would, would shake them up a little bit. I just grabbed five guys off the bench. They're not even in position. Doesn't matter. Get on the court. And so they're all playing out of position. I take my five starters and I sit them on the bench. 
And then for like the next minute, I just pace up and down the court. I'm just walking back up and forth. And I turn around and I get down on my knee and I look at these kids and I say, guys, I know you're tired. You've tried so hard. Can I get you a glass of water? Would that help? Like, do you need like a, you need a protein bar? You, and just, just take, you've, you've tried really hard. You've done good. You just go ahead and take a rest. You think that's what I told him? That is not exactly the words I said. No, I got down on a knee and I told them, if you ever want to touch this basketball court again, you will go out there and you try. If I see you quit on me anymore, you will never play another game, another minute the rest of this season. And like, I was really animated, really fired up. I was like, you do not quit on your teammates. You do not quit on each other. If you are going to quit, you can go, you can leave. And like, they get out on the court a little later and we still lose the game, but no one's quitting anymore. No one's giving up anymore. No one is like just not caring anymore because that's what we need, right? Sometimes we need somebody to motivate us. Sometimes we need some help. We need to do whatever it takes to motivate people to love. We need to do whatever it takes to motivate people to love. So maybe someone is, you put your arm around them and you walk with them and you motivate them to do the things that they're called to do. Maybe sometimes you get down on your knee and you get in the face and you tell them what you're doing is wrong and you need to shape up and you need to get it together. You're like, and here's the thing, that requires you actually knowing the people knowing what they need, knowing what they need, what's going on in their lives, why we have to know each other. It requires that of us. And I think it's really important for us to realize what are we motivating people to? So let's look at our passage again, verse 24. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of what? Love and good works. We're motivating people to, to love and good works. This idea of faithfulness. This is what we are calling people to. This is what we are motivating people to. We're not just getting in people's face and like, you need to come to community group. That's good, you should. But what we're motivating people to is, you, we don't get in their face and like shake them like, you need to come to church. They do, but what we're motivating people to is love and good works. These are to be, these are identifying characteristics of the church. This word love is the, it's the Greek word agape that really finds its idea, it finds its, its definition in 1 John 4.10 where it says, this is real love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. So this is what we're encouraging one another to do, to love in a, a selfless way way, to love in a Christ-like way, a love that serves, a love that cares, a love that gives, a love that is concerned more for the needs of others than for ourselves. This is what we are motivating people to. We're motivating people to faithfulness, to living out these good works, to living out the things that we see play out in the scripture. And here's what I find fascinating. As we, th- as we look at this idea of motivating each other to love, Love is not something that we can do on our own. This is something that requires community. We can have faith on our own. We can even have hope on our own. But it is really hard to love one another if there is no one another, right? It is hard to love your neighbor when there is no neighbor. And so this is a type of love the writer of Hebrews is saying, like, you can't do this alone. 
You can't love other people alone. You've got to be together. You have to do this with one another. Love requires community. It requires us being with one another. And this is what we do. We're people who are encouraged to love one another. We motivate one another to love and to good deeds, to live out, to live out the teachings of Jesus, to do the things that we see play out in the scripture. So as a church, we don't just motivate each other to come. We, we, we motivate each other to go and to do what the scriptures tell us to do and to live those out. Verse 25 says this. And let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. So, so two times in their passage, we find the, the Hebrew word or the Greek word alion. Every time I said that, that was a cool sound effect. Like, so two times in our passage, we find the Greek word alion. It's one another. It's what it's translated 94 times in the New Testament. The writers of the New Testament write this word, alion, one another. Why? Because this is not a spectator sport. This is, faith is not this thing that we do individually. Indo, like Christianity is not an individual sport. And as maybe you've known, if you've been part of our church for a while, there's been kind of a shift in the way that we've done things over the last few years. Like we've started taking communion together. We've started with scripture together. We've started having confession together. We've started saying the Lord's Prayer together. Why? Because it's community. It's a, it's a us. It's a we. This isn't just this individual thing that we do. It is something that we do as a, co as a, as a people. Together we are doing these things. Here's the reality is that church forces us to think about the whole, not just the part. Church forces us to think about our neighbor. <coughs> Church forces us to think about other people. It forces us not less to think about ourselves because the reality is we are very, as a people, very self-absorbed, very self-focused. It's not an indictment on you as an individual, just me too. As a people, like this is us. And so when we come to church, we push back against that and we care about the needs of other people and we care about everyone else. Notice this once again. So let us not neglect our meeting what? What's that word? together, collectively, with one another, together. We need each other. This week I was reading some research about the power of social isolation and how it was linked to all kinds of serious health conditions. Just read some more statistics for you. You're welcome. All right, here's what it says. Social isolation significantly increases a person's risk of premature death from all causes a risk that rivals those of smoking, obesity, and physical inactivity. So you're more, you're more likely to die from being alone than you are from smoking or obesity. Or I don't recommend doing those other things either, but isolation, that's what it begins to do. Social isolation was associated with a 50% increase in the risk of dementia. Poor social relationships was associated with a 29% increase in heart disease and a 32% increase in stroke. Loneliness was associated with higher rates of depression, anxiety, suicide. Being alone is not good for us. It is not what we need. And especially being alone, being separated from other body, from the body of believers, being separated from other Christians. Like we need each other. We have to have one another. 
there's this really good book that talks about that. It's the idea of living life together. So this is a guy by the name of Diedrich Bonhoeffer, and he writes this entire book about, the, about community, about living with one another. In my opinion, it's the greatest book that's written on the purpose of, of, an, of community. If you want to borrow this book, feel free. Like, I'd love to encourage you guys to read it. But one of the things he says in this book is he says this. He says, Christians are privileged to live in the visible fellowship with other Christians. It is by the grace of God that the congregation is permitted to gather visibly in this world to share God's word, word and sacrament. Do you guys think about what we do here together as a privilege? Do you think about this collectively being with one another as a gift from God? Because it is. That's what it is. And the idea, the reality is isolation is never good for the Christian. It is never wise. It is never good for us to isolate ourselves. As we read about this passage in, in 1 Peter chapter 5, it says of Satan that he is like a roaring lion looking for whom he may devour. If you have ever watched the animal planet, and ever watched lions devour other animals, they don't ever go to like this huge group of animals. Like, let me go pick a fight with all of those. No, what do they go for? The straggler, right? I'll be real honest. If I'm going to pick a fight, that's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to go pick a fight with all the buddies. Like, let's find the straggler. Because when isolation, there's, there's power in numbers, and so isolation is never good for the Christian. So the writer of Hebrews says it was dangerous practice for the early Christian to, to live life without the support of the community. That was true of the first century. It's true now in the 21st century that it is dangerous to live life outside of the community of believers. Because the reality is, is living faithfully, living a faithful Christian life, it's hard enough why should we make it more difficult by separating ourselves from other people who are doing it? Satan is relentless on his pursuit and attacks already. Why should we make it easier for him? Bonhoeffer, again, he says this. He says, the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged. For by himself, he cannot help himself from belying the truth. We need each other. We need one another. And so in, in verse 25, it talks about motivate and spur one another on. As it talks about in verse 24 or 25, it says encourage. And these are different words. And the word encourage, this is an idea of asking earnestly. It's begging one another. It is doing whatever it takes so that people will not walk away the church, from people who will not walk away from the faith. We are, must be willing to do whatever it takes to help one another, to encourage one another, even if it takes asking them and calling them 47 times to make sure they're awake, to show up on church, whether it's texting them every single week, like, hey, don't forget about community group, or whether it's, it's praying and talking to them every day about, hey, have you been in the word today? Have you been doing these things? Or whatever it may be, we do that because we encourage one another. And maybe you've seen the movie Finding Nemo. I love this movie. But in the movie Finding Nemo, there's this moment where Marlin, if, if you haven't seen the movie, spoiler alert, Nemo gets lost. All right? Um, if you haven't seen it in the last 20 years, that's on you. Okay? All right? But, you know, Nemo gets lost. 
And his dad, Marlon, begins to go chase after him and go to find him. And then when he starts, the story starts to circulate about what Marlon is finding his son. And he's, there's these quotes that begin to happen. He says, he will stop at nothing to find his son. That's one dedicated father, if you ask me. And they're Australian. I'm not even going to try to do the accent. But like, this is this idea. Is we are dedicated. We stop at nothing to encourage one another. I'm going to quote Bonhoeffer one more time. You're welcome. Here's what he says. He says, Nothing can be more cruel than the tenderness that consigns another brother or sister to his sin. Nothing can be more compassionate than the severe rebuke that calls another brother back from his path of sin. So nothing can be more cruel for us just to say nothing to someone who's walking away. Nothing is more compassionate for when we call someone back into this life that God has called us to live. So why? Why do we need to encourage? Why do we need to motivate? Why? It's because holding tightly is exhausting. Not wavering can be hard. Trusting is difficult. And following Jesus is hard work. And so we need to motivate, we need to encourage, we need each other to help us walk along this life. Has anybody ever seen the movie Matilda? Maybe read the book. All right, there's a moment in this movie that's disgusting, but I love it, all right? There's this moment in this movie where this guy, Bruce, this kid, Bruce, he steals a piece of cake from Miss Trunchbull's cake. And so she has this massive cake, and this is really mean headmaster, and, but Bruce steals a piece of cake. And he eats it, and he's found out. And his punishment is he has to go in, on stage in front of the entire, whole, entire school and finish off the whole, like, huge cake. And, like, that's going to be his punishment. And to start with, he's like, all right, I'm going to eat cake. And so he's eating this cake, and everything is good. And then I don't know if you've ever tried to eat a cake that's about this big. Um, not going to go very well. And he just, like, he starts to get tired. He starts to feel sick. And the murmurings in the crowd start going, oh, he's going to barf. He's not going to make it. And then Matilda stands up and she shouts, you can do it, Brucey. You can do it. And then all the rest of the crowd starts up. Yeah, Bruce, go, Bruce, go, Bruce. You can do it. And guess what he does? He finishes the cake. And I love in the movie, he like licks the plate clean. He's like, not only finishing the cake, I'm going to lick it all clean. Why? Because there was this motivation that moved him to eat some cake. No, forget about the cake metaphor for a second. But what if that is us? We stand up, we cheer for one another, we motivate one another not to give up, not to quit, to keep doing the things that God has for us, to actually live out these good works, to actually live these lives, these lives of love. And here's the thing, friends. To motivate and to encourage, they aren't suggestions. They're commands. This is what we're told in God's word to do. We're told to love one another. We're told to love our neighbor. We're also told to motivate one another. We're told to encourage one another. These aren't suggestions. If you have time in your busy schedule, send a motivational text to someone. Like, that's not what this is. These are commands that this is what we need to be doing. And so I just want you to think about this for just a second. Maybe just close your eyes. Let's, we're almost done. So don't fall asleep on me, all right? And I want you to think through these questions. Who do you need to motivate and encourage? Who's the person that you need to motivate and encourage? How do you need to motivate and encourage them? So who is it? 
How do you need to do it? Here's the final question. When are you going to do it? Mentally set a time on the calendar. And don't make it for like six months from now. Make it this week so that you can encourage and you can motivate and you can call the person to good deeds and to life of love and open your eyes. Maybe some of you in this room, maybe you don't have that person who can encourage and motivate you. Can I just ask you to ask someone? Like you don't have to ask everyone, but find someone that you can ask. Like, hey, will you encourage me? Will you motivate me? Because I need someone. I need you because we need each other. Remember? So once again, we started off by talking that Jesus didn't die to make us safe. We're not showing up at church to have a, a nice comfy service with good chairs and fun music and, you know, everything will be good. Like those things are fine. But man, Jesus died to make us dangerous. And in John chapter 17, Jesus is praying for his disciples. And here's what he says. He says, he asks God this. He says, I am not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. Because it's time to do battle. It's time to push back against the darkness in our world. It's time to live in love and good deeds. It's no longer time to play it safe. It's time for us all to collectively to get into, in the game. And we're going to need each other. We need each other to motivate us. We need each other to encourage us. We need help. We need each other. Let me pray for us. Father, Father, we thank you for, for who you are. God, we thank you for the way that you do love us. God, we thank you that you have given us this, this life that you've called us to. Lord, as we spent seven weeks talking about what you accomplished on the cross and what you called us to do in light of that, God, I pray that, that you'll help us to do it. God, help us to live as this community of believers who are just walking with you, who are doing what we can to encourage, to motivate one another, to living out this mission that you have for every single one of us. Lord, I thank you for the privilege of being together. I thank you for the privilege of one another. So God, I pray that you will help us to live out your, your mission for our lives. Lord, if there is someone that we need to encourage, someone we need to motivate, God, help us to do that. Give us the wisdom to know and the courage to do it so that we can help to, all of us to be the people that we need to be. Lord, if some of us in this room, we need, if we need encouragement, if we need motivation, God, help us, to, help us to turn to someone who can do that. Help us to find someone to help encourage us and to help motivate us to do the things that you've called us to do. Father, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.